Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of grief and loss and being diagnosed with brain cancer, such as glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagan. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. You can follow us on Facebook at Game on Glio or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. Or you can visit our website, thegameongleopodcast.com, for our blog, insights, and guest snapshots. Season two of the Game on Glio Podcast is sponsored by GT Medical Technologies and Gamma Tile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. This episode is brought to you by Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Western New York. Learn more at bcbswny.com. Welcome to season two of the Game on Glio podcast. It's hard to believe that we're already into the second season of what started out as a way for me to connect other individuals that are walking this journey through grief and loss and brain cancer. I did this to start honoring my late husband and a way to find purpose and meaning in his death at such a young age. What I did not realize is the community and the hope and the energy that I would find that surround the work that so many of us do in this field. We're a tribe. That's how I see all of us that are in this fight against brain cancer. We are a group of people, whether large or small. We're all connected to one another by a value, by a simple idea. We can lead each other. We can help each other. We can make a difference by just connecting to one another. That's what a tribe is. I had the honor and the pleasure of meeting Seth Godin a number of years ago, who wrote a book on leadership and tribes and the importance of them. The book is called Tribes. We need you to lead us. And isn't that so appropriate? Because that is exactly what so many of us in this community of grief and loss and brain cancer do. We lead each other. Seth mentioned to me once that tribes thrive. We deliver value. Connections lead to connections and great ideas spread. And as I start the second season in the month of May, which happens to be Brain Cancer Awareness Month, I had the pleasure and the honor of meeting an amazing individual, Harry LaRusso, who happens to be the guest on our show today. I met him and his wife, Dana, when I traveled down to Pittsburgh to actually film some footage of him running the Pittsburgh Marathon. He spent over six months training to run the full 26 miles. And as I watched and listened while I was down there, and I saw the energy that they created around his success, I realized that this community, this tribe that we are all a part of, none of us by choice, we are doing something of value. And that's what this is all about. I am so humbled and so honored to be hosting a second season of the Game on Glio podcast, to continue making those connections, to bringing value into all of your homes to give you stories that inspire and lift us up and make us cry and make us think and give us hope, but also give us the courage and the energy to fight, to find a cure, to find better clinical trials and funding for these clinical trials, and to lean on each other. Because for so many whether from brain cancer or another form of cancer, or as I've said before, a number of circumstances in life that has just created a situation where you've suffered tremendous loss. We're all connected and we can lean on each other to find that strength in moments and in times when we feel we don't have any. And I am so grateful to be bringing this to you, to be connecting these people 
to you to be bringing these stories into your homes, into your cars, into your radios, into your phones, your laptops, however you listen to our show. And I'm grateful to be sharing my journey as well, to continue sharing my ups and downs, my trials, my mistakes, my strengths as I go along. So thank you for staying with us. Thank you for staying dedicated and devoted to the Game on Glio podcast. We have so much in store for this season, and we have some really amazing news that we will be sharing later on in the season, just a little teaser, but we have some great things going on with Game on Glio, and it's because of all of your support and your dedication and your love of the show. I'd like to get started with our very first episode of season two. I am so excited. After a quick break and a message from our seasonal sponsor, GT Medical Technologies, we will be back with Harry LaRusso, who is our guest today. He is a three-year glioblastoma thriver, and he joins us next. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery, knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gamma tau therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, your neurosurgeon implants tiny gamma tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go on for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. Gamma tile therapy is for operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, and meningiomas. It is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gamatile therapy is FDA-cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Gamatile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gamatile.com. So I'd like to welcome you all back. We have with us today a very special guest kicking off the start of season two. His name is Harry LaRusso. He's a three-year GBM survivor, thriver, husband, and father. A manager for specialty food distributions company at Chef's Warehouse in Pittsburgh, he is also the co-founder for the Outlier Fund, an organization that raises funds for clinical research and treatments in brain cancer. Harry, thank you so much for being with us and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and have this conversation with you. It's a very interesting and important conversation and one that most of our listeners are very familiar with. You are actually a survivor and thriver of glioblastoma. I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about when you were diagnosed and what were your symptoms? What led you to actually going into the emergency room and, and finding this? Because I know for most people, uh, caregivers, patients, when they tell their stories, the symptoms of glioblastoma and other brain cancers is the hardest thing to define. And it's usually very last minute or it's something like a seizure or something that's actually bringing them in. Yeah. Well, you actually just closed with it perfectly. It was a seizure and I'll tell you how mine came on. So it was three years ago, which March 21st of 2019. It was a really normal day for me. After the work day, I ended up at the gym, had a workout. My sister was visiting from out of town, had her over for dinner, cooked dinner. I could tell you every single thing that we ate that night. You know, I put a kind of a lot of love into making that meal. <laughs> and, um, you know, after that, it came time to clean up and... Uh, I hate making the joke that I got myself out of cleanup, but I said, Hey, I was, you know, feeling tired. I'm going to go upstairs for a few minutes. And, you know, I went upstairs in our home and I, I get to the bedroom and I sort of kind of start to feel nauseous. Mm. Um, that, that feeling of fatigue started to feel like nausea. Mm -hmm. And then in the moment I said, okay, I have to make my way to the, to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was going to get sick. And as I start making my way into the hallway of our second floor of our home, um, I lose the sense of direction of where our bathroom is in the home that we've owned for, you know, now five years. Interesting. And I felt my body starting to really shut down. Um, I, I leaned into the wall and um, 
I don't think it was a feeling of seizing up, mm-hmm. but it was a more so kind of numb. I, I felt it beginning in my hands and in my arms. And, and um, you know, I, I really had to utilize the leverage of leaning into the wall. And so at that point, I said, you know, my wife was downstairs with my sister. I'm like, okay, something's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of yell out for her. And when I went to, to kind of scream out for Dana, I couldn't get anything out. And, um, you know, I felt my legs going out from underneath me and hit the floor, started working my way towards the restroom or at least a part of the second floor where I could maybe communicate with Dana somehow. And (laughs) at that point, uh, she heard me and made her way upstairs, um, recognized that this was something that we needed to be urgent and get me out and get some care. And prior to this, let me tell you, I've really never had anything more than the common cold. Yeah. Haven't had stitches, haven't broken a bone. (laughs) Um, You know, this was not something that we really saw coming whatsoever. And, you know, she immediately got me downstairs into the car and we went over to, in our neighborhood, just the local hospital. And, you know, it's, it, it really amazes me that, so this entire process, I never lost consciousness. I remember every single detail. That's interesting that you mentioned that because for most people that have seizures, they don't remember after they start to seize or they start to go into even a mild seizure, they don't remember the details. So as you're talking about this, I'm just, my mouth is kind of open because I'm just like, I, you, you remember everything. And that's just really... Um, unfortunate, but uh, amazing at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest with you, I, I'm grateful now that I, I, you know, of course have such clarity of that, uh, I guess you can call it episode. And, you know, the vision that I have is it was just pouring rain. And when we got to the ER, Dana couldn't get anyone to assist. And she got me into a wheelchair. I remember her pushing me up the ramp and pouring rain to get me into the ER and, um, you know, before I knew it, I was on, on a table in the hospital and uh, the doctor that came in said, you know, I fear it's a brain tumor. I just don't know uh, how severe. Let's get into a scan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from there, I'm sure you know how fast everything moves. Yeah. Um, was into a biopsy at that local hospital. Right then and there. Yeah, we, we wow. went right from the scan um, into a biopsy. And um, next thing I know, I remember waking up in a hospital room and being surrounded by my family. Mm-hmm. And that's when it was uh, confirmed based off of the biopsy that it was, in fact, a diagnosis of glioblastoma. You know, there's just so much kind of going through my head as you tell the story. And I think about what Dana had to go through you know, seeing you up in the hallway and then having to get you over to some type of an emergency room and then put you in a wheelchair and bring you in. I mean, you know, I kind of, I tip my hat to her, um, so to speak, because that's, it, that's so much to have to deal with. Um, and then for you guys to have to go in. So when the doctor, they got you in for a biopsy right away, when they told you the news, I'm assuming, I mean, you were mentioning that your wife and your family were with you. What did you do when he told you? I don't have a lot of regrets when it comes to this glioblastoma journey and um, my experience with it. But I think the one that I do have is that my family found out that it was, in fact, glioblastoma while I was still recovering from the biopsy. So they got the news before I did. Um, So, you know, it was incredibly, it was incredibly um, inspiring how fast they moved. Um, My parents are from Florida. They live in Florida. They immediately, when they heard from Dana, got on a plane and got up here. Um, My Mm -hmm. sister was obviously here. My, you know, Dana's family's local. Um, When I came out of the biopsy, they were all there in the room with me. And, you know, the difficult part of this for me, and really, again, it's, it's the only thing that I I look back on and have some regret. And I'll, I'll tell you why it's the idea that I was not there present when they found out. 
Right. You know, they got the news from the doctor and, and I would want, you know, I, I, I would want to be there to hug Dana and, mm-hmm. you know, um, put my arm around my mother and, mm-hmm. and embrace them when they took on this news. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead I, I was the last one to find out, you know, I, I was in a room with them and, um, you know, the doctor came in and explained to me exactly what glioblastoma is. And, you know, I remember asking the question, um, well, what does remission look like? Mm-hmm. And his response was, well, there really is no such thing as remission with glioblastoma. And it's like a punch to the gut, isn't it? You know what? It, it is. And, and everything was really moving so fast. And that's kind of been the the front half of our journey was, okay, things are moving incredibly fast. How do we slow them down? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned Dana. I can't, one of the first things I did when um, I was able to kind of get my feet back underneath me there in the hospital room, um, Dana and I were planning for a June wedding. We were only engaged at the time. Oh, wow. And yeah. And so I, um, I brought her, you know, I asked her to kind of come into the restroom with me and, uh, there in the moment, I really gave her the out. Uh, did you really? I did. Yeah. And, (sighs) you know, I explained to her, um, based off of the information that we just received from the doctor, Mm -hmm. I understood how hard it would be to attach your life to this or her life. Right. And, you know, it was incredible that um, she looked at me and said, not only are we getting married, we're getting married sooner. Um, <laughs> so, you know, this was right around the March 21st. We, we were married on March 29th. <laughs> wow. Uh, it was, um, you know, it was amazing how I, I think, and I don't want to sidetrack, but I think the most important part of this entire process is who you surround yourself with. Absolutely. Without a doubt. I mean, the, the family, the friends, uh, the surgeon, um, your support system is by far the most important part of the journey as far as I believe. And when I tell you, I have the greatest group of friends and family and, um, I I ended up getting home from the hospital and I walk out my front door and 10 of my closest friends Airbnb'd the house across the street. <laughs> they were there and they were willing to live there as long as it took. Dana's family and my friends and my family said, you're getting married this week. And they put together within a week the most incredible wedding that either of us could ask for. And so, you know, basically uh, about a, a week after ending up in the hospital and being diagnosed with glioblastoma, we went from being engaged to being married. It's hard to, I am getting choked up because <laughs> um, I think that's such an amazing love story. And it's a testament to how dedicated and devoted you and Dana are to each other. And it very much uh, replicates the love that I felt for my husband, Mike, and Granted, we were already married when he was diagnosed, but um, there wasn't anything I wouldn't have done for him. I was in it, um, you know, all all the way and, you know, would move heaven and earth uh, for him. So, and when you talk about things moving at lightning pace, uh, for those who are not in the journey or who are kind of just getting started in, in this journey, it really is things are just moving around you. It's almost like you are standing still, but everything is just, you see everything just kind of shooting past you almost. And, and you're just the information that you're getting and what you're being told to do. And you're being pulled all of a sudden to millions of appointments and tons of directions and and specialists and doctors that you have to see. And it's just, it's hard not to get overwhelmed. So I, I think it's so great that not only did your friends do what they did, but that in the moment of having so much going on around you guys, you were able to take 
five minutes to say, we're going to get married. Almost like you had time stand still for a few minutes to embrace that, that piece of what you and Dana share. And I, I think that that's just such an amazing thing. You know, it almost, um, and, and thank you so much for, for saying that I, it was like for that night, it didn't exist. Yep. It was just about Dana, myself, our loved ones, and we were just able to celebrate. And, wow. you know, I think it just says so much um, about this group that I'm surrounded with that, and, and Dana, you know, I would not be here having this conversation with you if it wasn't for her. The idea that we could all just hit pause and be there present and around each other and celebrate. And that's probably the greatest lesson that I've taken away from all of this is the idea, the perspective on time and mm-hmm. the ability to slow things down and, and be present. And that really started at that wedding for us. Yeah. Um, we had such a change of perspective on on the value of time and appreciation for being present and in the moment. Yeah. And that's something that I think that so many people across the world right now, um, and over the last couple of years, in some way, shape or form, we all seem to get slapped in the face with this idea of needing to be more present in where we are right now. And I think up until the pandemic had hit, everybody was just so futuristic. And especially in the US, you know, you're just so driven towards the future. You're so driven towards, you know, financial stability and family and all of these goals that you have. And then the pandemic hit. And on top of that, for those of us who've been in the world of brain cancer, you're dealing with both of these very different things that are happening at the very same time. But both of them have this concept around them about really needing to be present and value the time that you have in this current moment. I'm curious, things moved a little differently for you than it did for Mike and I. You know, Mike didn't have his biopsy until three days after he was diagnosed. And even then, you know, so for three days, we thought it was a brain tumor. They told us they thought it was GBM, but we had to wait three days before the surgery they didn't do the biopsy right then and there. So then, so things moved a little differently. So did you start radiation right away or, you know, how did that unfold or did you have a period of time before next steps really began? Sure. So, you know, it kind of folds back into the idea of trying to slow things down. Mm -hmm. We talk about this point of being diagnosed, how many decisions need to be made? Yeah. How, How fast everything's moving. Yeah. From you know, the support system I I have, we narrowed it down to a really small group. It was basically my wife, myself, my mother, and my sister-in-law. And they developed a list of surgeons that we felt we would have the best care with. Mm -hmm. Um, We thought that that would most likely be the starting point for this journey and giving us the best ability to um, move forward through it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we sat down with a list of surgeons and, um, you know, I'm very fortunate we're here in Pittsburgh. So, um, you know, we had a couple Zoom calls w- with surgeons around the country and we had an in-person meeting with UPMC, Pittsburgh Medical Center. Yeah. And, you know, again, the, the two most important things we were hunting for was the surgeon and um, we knew we wanted to be part of a trial. Being younger, you know, I'm 33 at the time, we wanted to be part of something innovative, something aggressive. Um, I, was, I was confident that I would be able to hold up well during treatment and, and surgery. And so we walk into UPMC and I have a meeting with Nanduka Moncular. Mm-hmm. And he walks into the room and we actually presented him the list of you know, every other surgeon that we were considering and he complimented the list and he had nothing but great things to say about everyone listed. Mm -hmm. But then he told us his story and we got to know a little bit more about him. And when he left the room, I looked up and I looked at Dana, my mother, my sister-in-law, and they said, he's the one. Mm -hmm. And I said, absolutely. 
there was mm-hmm. just a feeling in the room that we said, he is the one that we trust to remove this tumor mm-hmm. and, and make the next steps. And um, we committed that day to working with him. And I'll tell you where I was very fortunate. It's just almost sounds too good to be true. But when it comes to the study that we we're looking for and the trial that we wanted to be on, I walked into UPMC, let's say on, on a Tuesday, mm-hmm. two days later, they got approved for a study that fit me perfectly. What was the study? Do you remember? I, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm more than happy to share the trial number with you. The trial actually started at surgery with a virus being implemented into the resection bed, into the cavity of where the brain tumor was removed. Interesting. And then from surgery, I went into, I believe it was six weeks of radiation, five times a week, mm-hmm. and six rounds of chemotherapy. And then um, every two weeks for a year, I participated in immunotherapy from there. Okay. From that point, the trial ended and it was just a commitment to scans moving forward. Okay. So this trial was at Hillman Cancer Center? It was. Okay. Um, And so you just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, It sounds like when this was introduced and you were given that information. Exactly. You know, when we walked into Hillman initially to meet with Dr. Monkular, we didn't know anything about the trial and it being scheduled to open there. Mm-hmm. It just happened to come up as we were having conversation. Wow. And, you know, don't get me wrong, we were searching elsewhere for other trials. Right. And when we walked in and had our consultation with Dr. Monkular, uh, the mention of this trial came up. And the idea of, of how well it would fit the conditions that I was in. Mm-hmm. And we made a commitment there to not only move forward with Dr. Monkular, but move forward with this trial through UPMC Hillman. Yeah, because from what it sounds like, the trial, you had to be going in for surgery for the trial to be able to take place because they had to introduce this virus at the time of having brain surgery. So all of the pieces have to fit together at the exact right moment. Correct. I mean, it was just incredible timing and started it, you know, as soon as we were able to. Wow. So fortuitous and uh, such a grateful experience to have. Um, For those who are listening, you know, I will do some research. um, And if I can find some information on that clinical trial or find out the status of it, I will make sure it's posted on our resource page. Um, But in the meantime, You know, I think that that's such an amazing opportunity to have. And I think that's the struggle with so many that walk through this journey of brain cancer. You're desperately looking for what could be a good fit, but there's such a small window of opportunity for so many different things that you have to either make sure that you don't do anything that could put you out of a clinical trial when you're making decisions in the midst of making decisions or you have to be in the right place at the right time to get the information. So your status currently is there's no evidence currently. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. I, you know, I go in for scans every eight weeks and um, based off of the recommendation of the insurance company that we're part of, we're going to move that to 12 weeks starting this cycle. Um, but I do go in every eight weeks and all of my scans have been no evidence of a disease. Wow. Now, are you still doing chemotherapy today or has that ended as well? So chemotherapy has ended. I do still take Keppra to manage potential seizures. Yep. So for those who don't know, Keppra is a anti-seizure medication. And so you are still taking that today. I am. I'm still taking Keppra. Chemotherapy ended um, after the six rounds of the trial. And, you know, chemo for me my body handled it very well. Mm -hmm. Um, I took the uh, first pill and I struggled a bit. And then fast forward to the last pill, I struggled a bit. But in between, I had no problems whatsoever. And, you know, it's funny, Dana and I went on a honeymoon. I brought the chemo with me. Yeah. And um, I had an opportunity to spend... uh, 10 days in Italy for a work function 
I brought the chemo with me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we, we were really kind of determined to not be chained down by it. And, right. um, you know, I was somewhat grateful that it was pill form and I, I was able to pack it up and continue to move on, you know, with my everyday life and, you know, grateful that my body tolerated it pretty well. So now you did the chemotherapy for how long? Just six weeks? Six rounds. It was 28 days, five days off. Yep. Okay. So just about uh, six months of chemotherapy. Yes. Okay. Um, And that was part of the clinical trial that you had participated in. That was how they set it up was that you would do six rounds. Absolutely. Yeah. So the the way the trial was broken down was the um, implementation of the virus at surgery Mm-hmm. And then right into the six weeks of radiation, the six rounds of chemo, and then the every two weeks for a year of immunotherapy. Of immunotherapy. Okay. Um, and that is slightly different than the norm. I know that standard protocol is uh, 12 to 28 rounds of uh, the temozolomide and then the six weeks of radiation at the start. But then you also introduced immunotherapy, which... For those who are listening, that is a very big push these days is introducing immunotherapy into brain cancer treatment and something that more and more patients are looking into and are doing um, as they go through course of treatment. So that's really interesting that you did six rounds and that you didn't have, I'm assuming the chemotherapy, you said it was pill form, so I'm assuming it was temozolomide? It was, yes. Okay. And outside of that, you talk about that you took it with you, that you didn't let it chain you down when you were doing your chemotherapy. You also didn't let it stop you from starting a family. Correct. And yeah, you know, I'm glad you bring this up. Um, It's something they don't tell you during the process of, let's call it finding the surgeon and finding the trial and interviewing hospitals and hours, you know, days spent online researching the diagnosis, you know, again, I, I circle back to the support system I have. My, my sister-in-law recommended it. You know, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am that she did. Mm-hmm. Here we are at home with um, a little boy named Wiley, who's <laughs> actually just recently nine months old. Oh. And, um, you know, my wife and I, Dana, we went the process of IUI mm-hmm. based off of the sample that I I worked with the sperm bank here. And funny story, the window for us to be able to do that was um, a very small one. And, you know, I actually transported it from the bank to the UPMC (laughs) and (laughs) as fast as humanly possible when they gave me the green light. And um, we're now parents. And it was just such an incredible decision to make with all the chaos that was going on around us. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that we did. Wow. That is absolutely amazing. And so Dana got pregnant as you were in the midst of chemotherapy. Dana did so much in the midst of this journey. (laughs) That picture is definitely being painted. (laughs) She, She is just, you know, when I look for strength, I look towards Dana. Wow. And, you know, she is just, so strong and so composed and you know she is the leader in our life and in our house and you know she had the opportunity to you know everything's going on with me being diagnosed with glioblastoma and she made a major career change i remember her accepting the role from the hospital Mm -hmm. and you know, not only that, she handled all of the appointments and scheduling in addition to glioblastoma, um, but with IUI and, and wow. setting us up to go the natural route of IUI. And it did not work for us the first time. So, you know, she was just so level headed and so composed and so strong. And without her touch and impact, on everything we do, I wouldn't be here having this conversation with you. And I don't think we would be parents. Yeah. It's, you guys make an amazing team and that has multiple impacts and ripples over the course of a journey like this. And 
it says a lot, not just about her, but about you and about the way you guys have ventured through this journey together. And it's a testament to the type of relationship that you guys have, even with all of the other supports and the friends and the family, you know, it's, it's you and her in, in this journey. And it says a lot about the two of you. So it's wonderful to hear the story and to hear not only your journey through this, but, you know, Dana's journey as well. It impacts both of you and to see how beautifully you guys have handled all of this and where you are. It's just such a a profound thing to hear about. You guys are very blessed. And I, I don't think you could have asked for a better partner in all of us. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, I'll share with you something Dana and I really have in common and, and we share daily. And it could sound strange in, in some forms related to glioblastoma. Um, but we have a sense of gratitude for our experience with GBM. Explain that. If Dana and I could go back pre-diagnosis and someone gave us the opportunity to change all of this, we wouldn't. And we say that to each other confidently often. And, and I'll tell you why. Pre-GBM, Dana and I had an idea of who we wanted to be, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the human, um, for me, the husband, the father, this, this, you know, the, the professional, this idea of where I wanted my life to go. Mm-hmm. And for Dana and I, you know, she was very much in the same position. We didn't know how to get there. Mm-hmm. And I think when you, you know, naturally, all of us, we desperately try to avoid, and I know for, I'll I'll speak for Dana and I, we sure did, that bubble of discomfort and challenge and and fear and, and chaos that really is GBM. Yeah. But there, once we found ourselves, you know, GBM slingshot us headfirst into that together. Mm-hmm. There we found change. No one changes when things are easy, mm-hmm. right? And here we are together in the most difficult point of our lives together. Mm-hmm. And we embraced it together. We stood in there in, in that kind of GBM trench together, back to back. And, you know, we changed. We, we evolved. We found a new sense of perspective mm-hmm. and values and our, our time together is no longer just time together. Every, every moment, every second, it, it's one of the greatest things that's happened to us. And, you know, I'm just so fortunate that I was there with her and that we were able to come out better than we went in. And, you know, it's funny, it's something we kind of say to each other, um, and I and I say it often. We had to go there to get here. Yeah. And you know, go there is is GBM, and getting here is the absolute best versions of ourselves, and that's where we are right now. It's amazing what life can throw at you to force you into a mindset or onto a path that you never would have considered, but. To say that you're grateful, it's just such a profound way of seeing this journey and thinking about this. And I don't think I've had a conversation quite like this before. And it's, it's a question that was brought up to me after Mike passed, after he died. And my counselor had asked me, given everything that you know now, given where you are with the podcast and the work that you're doing and the advocacy, if somebody had given this choice to you and told you and Mike ahead of time, this could happen to you and you could have this. And what, you know, would you have backed away? Would you have not wanted to meet him? Would you have wanted to take away, you know, or walk away from everything, knowing everything that was going to transpire down the road and what you might lose And my answer without even thinking about it was absolutely not. I would do it all over again, even knowing 
the outcome and knowing where it was going to go because it taught both of us a great deal. And even though for me in my journey, I lost him, it has put me on a very different path than the one that I originally thought I was going to start out on. And it has made me extremely grateful for all the experiences that I've had because of what he and I went through. Um, Not only the people that I've met and the stories I get to hear like yours, but the way that I view things in life. And so to hear you describe it, being in the midst of it, it's so impactful and it means so much to, to me and to so many others that you're embracing this journey so fully and doing what you're doing. And I, that can't be stressed uh, and, and shouted out loud enough that it's, it's a really weighted statement and it's just extremely impactful. So I'm really grateful that you've shared those thoughts with me. Of course. And, and, you know, I appreciate you uh, saying that and, you know, I, I think about the impact that you've made and um, take it from me on my side. I haven't missed an episode. Uh, I've I've listened to every single episode you have online and you know the big takeaway from what I can share is sometimes I struggle voicing the gratitude side of this Mm -hmm. because I have such a respect for others who are in this position Mm -hmm. Um, or even, you know, caregivers, everyone has their own experience. And I think the most important thing that we could do is understand that my experience is not going to be identical to yours, identical to someone else's. And I obviously I've I've listened to every guest that you have had (laughs) on here. And, you know, we all have a lot in common, but not everything. You know, we handle this diagnosis very different. And, you know, hearing you voice the side of, you know, this was incredibly tragic for you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've heard that and related to the situation that you were in. But finding out that you were able to take this and create a platform that you've impacted so many people's lives and shared so much knowledge with them. And given us, and I'll say us, because I'm, I'm part of this group, so much confidence when we carry this disease and are part of this community, incredibly grateful for that. So thank you for all that you do on your side and, and sharing your sense of gratitude based off of your experience. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I'm not great with compliments. <laughs> so. sure. I, uh, I, I never know exactly what to say, but it means so much to me. And you touched on something that is what Game on Glio is really about, and that is hope and resiliency in the midst of such a very heavy diagnosis. And that is the running theme. It is the blood in the veins of exactly what it is we talk about on this show, and that is hope and and triumph and finding that inspiration and that strength forward, knowing that at some point this is going to get better. And you are a perfect example of finding that stride and and making that mark. And to that end, as we talk about hope and inspiration and, and ways of impacting others with this disease, you started the Outlier Fund which has been an absolute amazing organization and you are doing tremendous work with it. Tell our listeners a little bit about what it is and the purpose of the Outlier Fund. Of course, yeah, thank you. You know, for for us, when we created the Outlier Fund, the pillars behind it are really to bring hope to those impacted by GBM and raise awareness. I think about the first time I heard the word uh, glioblastoma, mm-hmm. I was laying on a hospital bed and I, I immediately Googled it. Mm-hmm. Never heard it before. And I don't think there's a reason why I should be there in that position and just hearing about something like this for the first time. 
You and I, I, I am right there with you. And because that was the exact same experience that Mike and I had had was the first time we heard about was when he was laying on the table and we had to, to Google to figure out what this was. And that should not be the case. It should be as common a conversation as lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer. It should be out there just as much as, as these other forms of cancer are. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And, you know, in a sense, it kind of helped drove the name behind it and the names evolved and changed so much as far as its meaning. But GBM is an outlier versus other cancers, the same way you just explained. Mm -hmm. And the doctor, when I received the diagnosis post biopsy, I asked, you know, well, what is my goal? You know, what, where do you take this if there's no such thing as remission? What did they say? Your goal should be to live long enough to see a cure. Mm. And at that point, I'm not the type of person to just sit back and play no role in that. Mm -hmm. And my part could be very minimal. You know, there's a very good chance it will be. But if I have, and, and again, going back to some of the things that the Outlier Fund stands for, if we're able to gain much necessary funds for impactful research, mm -hmm and play a part in helping, a, a, even if it's a minor part, in one day seeing that cure, like this doctor said to me, mm -hmm. we're going to do it. That's a goal of ours. Absolutely. Well, it's a very admirable goal. So where is the Outlier Fund today? You know, What are your hopes for it going forward? Sure. This year has is, is really, um, it's been a commitment of ours to just gain momentum behind it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the first year moving outside of the treatment process that we were in to really just kind of devote as much time and effort and energy into initiatives and events and creating awareness. And, you know, two goals of ours right now that are really at the top of the list that we're getting ready to implement is, you know, first the idea of resources. And, you know, I think we, we just discussed it. You hear the word glioblastoma and then you immediately Google it. And what usually comes up, let, let's call it <laughs> most likely a very grim life expectancy mm -hmm. that I'll go ahead and say is, is probably dated information. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we would like to, do our part in creating a hub for people to go and just be inspired by resources that have worked for others. What's trending, what's new, what's different. Mm -hmm. I, I meditate daily. Do you really? I do every morning. I won't start the day without meditation and journaling. The impact of stress mm -hmm. on your life and what you carry. I make sure I have an outlet for that. And for me, that comes in the morning between meditation and journaling. Now, how long do you spend doing each? I do a matter of five minutes of each. So five minute okay. meditation and five minute journaling. Okay. So it doesn't take a lot of time out of your day. Nope. And the days that I don't practice, mm -hmm. I feel it. I, I really? feel uh, the weight, of course, because uh, honestly, it, it took me a lot to get into it. It, mm -hmm. it took it took me a, a glioblastoma diagnosis, a brain tumor diagnosis to, to, to get into these types of practices that I mm -hmm. wanted to be part of that, you know, affect your overall health. And mm -hmm. am I going to say to you, stress causes cancer? I won't. But will I tell you that living a life stress-free is more healthy for you than not? Absolutely. And there's so much research that can back that up that talks about the, the benefits of meditation and yoga and deep breathing. And, of course. Um, and there's a ton of research to back up the domino effects that stress can play on somebody's life, the impacts in a negative way that it can have over prolonged periods of time. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of weight behind these type of practices and this type of thinking. I completely agree. And I think diet plays into the conversation much like stress where Will I tell you that sugar causes cancer? No, that's not my position. I won't say that here. Mm -hmm. But will I say living a life with a diet that's as healthy as possible puts you 
in a better overall position? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at that the same way as stress, that we built a program to relieve my, my life, myself of stress daily, starting first thing in the morning. And mm -hmm. same way with diet. I built a diet program that, again, pre-diagnosis, I never even really considered diet. Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to live a healthy lifestyle, but what does that mean? Right. And then during diagnosis, I felt, you know, I found a release of stress, a focus on headspace, a diet that I carry on consistently to today and that I plan on for the rest of my life. Now, do you work with a specialist or a nutritionist or something like that in order to build that diet? Because I know for a lot of people, that is a massive hurdle. Um, and, and trying to build in new practices and new habits for eating is something that can be really challenging. And a lot of people don't know where to begin. So I don't, but I, I will tell you where we began. We tried a little bit of everything, mm -hmm. right? Like what's the most popular response you find on Google is the ketogenic diet. Right. And so of course, let's try it out. For us, we had to figure out, and I think that's a strong statement in this process is just because a diet works for me doesn't mean it's going to work for someone else. I think right. you really have to figure out those core beliefs that are sustainable for you mm -hmm. and build that program around what's going to work for the long haul. And for me, it wasn't a ketogenic diet. What it was, uh, I'll tell you, is for the most part, every meal that I eat is a meat and a vegetable. I try to eat as clean as possible and I do the best to starve my body of artificial ingredients like sugar. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to experience eating, I'm not going to tell you that I never have ice cream. Because if Dan and I are out on a date and we could go to this brand new ice cream shop that we haven't been and she's been wanting to try, and that's going to be more than just satisfying that sweet tooth that an experience is going to come out of it by being able to, you know, be there with her and, and enjoy this. Mm -hmm. I embrace it. Yeah. Same way with pizza, cheeseburger, whatever it may be. Um, I've taught myself to, if I'm going to get a sense of fulfillment from what I put into my body, I'm embracing that all day long. Yeah, absolutely. So there's balance. It seems like there's balance in the way you approach eating healthy, but still being able to enjoy the finer things in life when it comes to food and that sense of fulfillment and experience when it comes to eating. So that balance, it seems like you found a balance with that. Of course. And I think it works the opposite way too. You know, I think you can gain so much from food and the experience and likewise, lingering stress. Like, I can't believe I just ate that. Because honestly, everything relates back to GBM. So like, hey, if I eat this, mm -hmm. how is it going to affect my diagnosis? Right. And, and I've learned that that stress you put on yourself mm -hmm. could cause just as much damage as the food you put in your body. Yep, exactly. I've really learned to regulate that too. <laughs> and as much as I enjoy the, those meals that I treat myself, I don't stress them at all. Right. And that's been a big learning experience for us. So- you know, we're talking about health and we're talking about stress and diet and eating. It's kind of the perfect segue to discuss a, a monumental challenge that you put on yourself. You took part in the Pittsburgh Marathon, uh, which is a, a massive two-day event that takes place in Pittsburgh. And you decided you wanted to run the full 26 miles of the marathon. Tell our listeners first of all, why you wanted to do this? And what was some of the preparation and the training that had to go into that, given, you know, the, the diagnosis that you carry and the, the other stipulations that kind of might be around some of the training tactics and methods? Yeah, of course. So for us, we knew we wanted to do something impactful related to the diagnosis. So I <laughs> saw the news of the Pittsburgh Marathon and I turned to Dana one day and I said, hey, I'm going to run this marathon. And she looked at me and she smiled and said, sure, you know, the 5K or the half. And I said, no, I'm going to run the full. I'm going to take on, I'm going to run the 26 miles of the marathon. And at the point, this was four months prior to 
the start day. Mm -hmm. And I looked at the marathon as in a sense of relating to glioblastoma because glioblastoma is a marathon. Interesting parallel. Mm -hmm. Think about it. I mean, the idea of distance running is being able to embrace challenge, Mm -hmm. maybe call it pain or or difficulty for a long period of time. Right. The sense of personally of of embracing that and being part of it, I somewhat craved it afterwards. You know, I've often found myself asking, what's next? What's the next difficult thing? It reminded me what it feels like to overcome and work through hard, difficult things. And I said, what's next and what could be impactful? And that led us to... The 26 miles. <laughs> 26 miles can be difficult and impactful. And, you know, I, I always really talk about how many amazing people came into my life after I was diagnosed mm-hmm. or almost because I was diagnosed. And I work with so many different coaches and trainers locally to really, you know, post-diagnosis help get my body physically back to where I wanted it to be. Right. And one of them I was introduced to when I committed to running the marathon is a distance coach professionally who's here in the area. We had a conversation and he said, I'm in, I am part of this. We're not only going to help you get across a finish line, we're going to affect the lives of others and do our part in, in supporting Wow. And he committed to being part of the team, and so did 42 other runners. Um, wow. Here at the marathon, we had a team of 42 representing the Outlier Fund. They all did an amazing job of fundraising and um, just, you know, goal number one. And now you, you've exceeded your goal that you originally set for the race. Is that correct? You know, when I... Worked with the Pittsburgh Marathon to be a official fund of the marathon. And it was our first year being approved. They said, okay, you have to get 20 some runners and raise $12,000. And so I looked at it. I said, okay, well, the money goal is going to be 26,000, right? Why do we go 26,200? Because it's the distance of the marathon. You know, then I looked at the runner side. I said, I don't know that many runners. I, I barely know <laughs> that, that many people that would commit to this type of activity. And, and fast forward, we've raised just under $40,000. Wow. And, you know, that's been close to 400 donations. Unbelievable. We, we broke 40 runners um, from all over the country. We've had people fly in from Florida, New York, a group drove in from Connecticut to be part of the event here locally in Pittsburgh. The community just rallied so much and it's been truly successful. It's that is such, such an amazing news to hear to raise that much money and raise that much awareness and have that many people partake in an inaugural event that you've participated in it's truly inspiring to see that many people rally around such a great and wonderful cause and to see how well you've done to prepare. I ran 640 miles. Just to prepare. (laughs) Just to prepare. That was the goal was 600 and I ended up right at 640 miles. And let me tell you what was more difficult than the miles. Um, it was watching my family make sacrifices to allow me to run those miles. How so? So to be able to run 14 miles on a Tuesday is challenging. Mm-hmm. And in a sense of I work full time, my work, my wife works full time. We have a nine month old child. Mm-hmm. So when do you break away to run for hours? Right. Um, as much as I wanted to do it at 11 o'clock at night, and don't get me wrong, I had to, a lot of times I would miss bedtime, bath time, um, miss dinner. Dana is the real MVP of this marathon <laughs> initiative for me and the training 
because she took on, you know, she put the burden of it on her shoulders. I did the easy part. I ran the miles. She kept our home intact and, and life moving forward so I could commit to this. And that was the most challenging part of the preparation for me, not the miles, but the sacrifice that I watched her make under the roof of our home. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like you guys both made sacrifices because as a dad, I'm sure bath time, bedtime, those are important, important events and moments in your child's life. So it's a sacrifice that you guys both made, but what a successful sacrifice and look at the outcome of that. And it's a small blip, you know, it's a small moment and you guys did what you had to do and here's the outcome of it. And it's truly amazing. And, and it's so wonderful to hear how much you've raised and how much awareness will be brought to this because of it. So it's exciting. And, you know, for everybody who's listening, we will have some special video, uh, regarding uh, the marathon and some footage of Harry and his wife, Dana, in conjunction with this episode. Before we sign off, I would love if you could just share with us some of your hopes uh, for yourself, for your family, going forward, you know, stepping into this next phase of life and where you're headed. What do you hope for going forward? Sure. And, you know, Quickly, I just want to share one other thing because I I think it's relatable to milestones um, in the glioblastoma journey. I I think about when I rang the bell on treatment. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually rang the bell during COVID. And so, you know, you're you're going into a hospital where there was so much distance and no one could embrace each other. Mm -hmm. And... Funny enough, they actually called off the ringing of the bell ceremony for me. And that morning, I got a call. And they said, the staff, the doctors, the, the patients that you've become friends with as mm-hmm. you're hooked up to the machine for hours, getting immune therapy, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we want to do something. We have to acknowledge this. Mm-hmm. And so they set up a bell in the parking garage of the hospital. And we all went downstairs in the parking garage and socially distant, I rang the bell. And, you know, I looked around and I looked at the doctors, the oncologists, the patients that came down that, that were there for the afternoon, the nurse team, my wife, my friends. And, you know, in that circumstances under those conditions, I wasn't able to hug or embrace anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, But I rang that bell as hard as I possibly could. And my mind went to the community behind this disease, right? So when you ring that bell, I, you know, and, and you get a sense of you're not ringing it just for yourself. You know, you're ringing it for the people who have been in that position and rang it before you. Mm -hmm. And, the ones that until we find a cure are going to, you know, continue to, to ring it moving forward as they go through treatment, or even if we don't find a cure and treatment continues, that, that will continue to ring that bell. And that was big for me related to the marathon I just ran, mm-hmm. that I was able to tap into that strength of this community. And, you know, the outliers out there that have challenged this disease and, and represent glioblastoma in a way of, of positivity and strength. Mm-hmm. And when I crossed the finish line um, and had the team of people supporting us, and then on the back of our uniforms, we ran in memory of, of quite a, pe- a few people who, you know, unfortunately are no longer with us because of glioblastoma. It, it was not just my marathon. This was a marathon for so many more than just me. And it was the strength of this GBM community that really helped me get across the finish line. Well, I don't think we can say anything better than that. That's what this is all about. We are one enormous community for brain cancer and glioblastoma. And we all hold hands together. We all fight the fight together. And we all stand with each other, no matter how similar or different our stories are. Um, 
this is a community and you represent a big part of that community. The work that you and Dana are doing, not just for yourselves, but for those around you, means so much to so many, as does having you on the show and telling your story um, so intimately and so deeply. I really am grateful to have had you on and have had this experience. And I look forward to, um, you know, working with you down the road and, and hearing more of your adventure and where you guys are headed. I definitely want you to keep us posted on how you're doing, but I just want to say thank you. Um, this has been an amazing show and I am so grateful for everything that you've shared with us today. I really, uh, appreciate you giving me the opportunity and, uh, as a fan of the podcast, I look forward to so many more episodes. And thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. And we will be right back. If you would like to hear more of Harry LaRusso's story and watch video of he and his wife, Dana, telling the amazing journey that they have been going through, please visit our YouTube channel, Game on Glio Podcast. There you can find unique testimonials and some documentary style videos that we put together here at Game on Glio. You won't be able to find those anywhere else except on our YouTube channel. So please visit us, subscribe, like us, and share us with others. A proud episode sponsor for the Game on Glio podcast, Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Western New York has helped millions of members since 1936 lead healthier lives. As a community-based, not-for-profit health plan, Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield invests millions of dollars each year to strengthen and enrich the health and quality of life in Western New York. Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield provides a wide variety of health and wellness initiatives throughout our community all year long, including a full summer schedule of free fitness classes throughout the region, which can be found online at bcbswny.com play. You've been listening to the Game on Glio podcast, the podcast that is designed to educate, advocate, and tell the real stories of those walking the journey of brain cancers such as glioblastoma and grief and loss. If you like our show, please share us with others. Follow us on Instagram at Game on Glio podcast or on Facebook at Game on Glio. You can visit our website and our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere podcasts are played.